From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is May 18th, 2022. It is a Wednesday. And that means, because it's Wednesday, it means that we are going to study reading number four of our Torah portion, which is Bahar. Now, Torah portion this week started off by talking about Shemitah, the sabbatical year. We talked about Yovel, which is the Jubilee year. And essentially, the themes of these mitzvot the, the energy, as we discussed over the last few days, was the is and was, or was and is, the idea of remembering who is in control. It's God's world, and we are fortunate to be guests in this place, to remind ourselves that we are not the balabas, we are not in charge, but God's in charge. Every seven years, we, lay, we let the land go fallow. We don't touch the land. It's not our land. We don't own it. We relinquish ownership over for a year. Every 50 years, all land that's sold to another party gets reverted back to the original owner and their family every 50 years. So what happens is there's a general reset of land and it again reminds us that God is in charge and God's division is in charge. It's interesting. There's a line in Pirkei Avot that we learned this past Shabbat in Ethics of Our Fathers and it says, Ten loy mishaloi. I believe it's Rabbi Akiva who says this. Ten loy mishaloi. She'ata v'shalcha shaloi. It says, give him, God, what is his. Because you and yours are his. You with me on this? Give him what's his because you and yours are his. And the message is, even what we think we own, what we think we possess... Right, the houses that we live in, the stuff that we, that we utilize, at the end of the day, the land was here before us, it's going to be here after us, it originates with God, even the stuff that we buy, the stuff that we acquire over the years, it's just stuff, it's just stuff, and ultimately it all belongs to God, it's all God's stuff, we have the ability to use it for a certain amount of time, but at the end of the day, it's not ours. And to remind ourselves of this, we have the mitzvah of Shemitah and Yovel, sabbatical year and Jubilee year. We have the mitzvah of Tzedakah. Same idea. That I'm sharing what I have with others because I know ultimately it's not really mine. It's been given to me. God's allowing me some opportunity to use some of this stuff for a little while. The least I can do is to share it with someone else who is in need. It's a, perspe- it's a strong perspective. Um, we also read... We also read yesterday and learned yesterday about the idea of when you sell a home, you're only selling it for a number of years. You sell land, you're only selling it for a number of years until the sabbatical year. Sorry, until the 50th, that year, number 50, the Jubilee year, because it's going to revert back to the original ownership anyway. So you're only selling it for a certain amount of time. So it's essentially prorated. Okay, so that's what we explored over the last few days. Today, we are going to continue the conversation. This is going to be reading number four, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25. Here we go. We're going to talk here about redemption of soul property. If your brother, 
becomes destitute. And this doesn't mean brother, literal brother. It means like general brother, right? If your brother becomes destitute and sells some of his inherited property, listen to this, his redeemer who was related to him shall come forth and redeem his brother's sale. So let's, let's use the name Ruvain, the first of the 12 tribes, to catch all name Ruvain. So Ruvain falls on hard times. Okay? Ruvain needs to sell some property to get some income, to get some money. It's a cash flow challenge. He needs some money. He sells a piece of land. Where did that land come from? It's in the family. It's part of his inherited property. It's part of the original inheritance of the land of Israel. And now he sells it. So the Torah tells us about a land buyback program, essentially, where the Redeemer, Go'alo, like the Redeemer, like not Mashiach, but like, you know, Mashiach is the Redeemer. The Redeemer for this guy, who's related, shall come forth and redeem his brother's sale. What it means by redeeming his brother's sales means the following, that the relative or really anybody else can go ahead and pay the, the, the buyer, give the buyer back the purchase amount and get the land back for the fellow, for Ruvain, who fell on hard times. So Ruvain's desperate. Ruvain needs money. He sells his field. He sells his property to get money. The redeemer, the relative, can come ahead, can, can come along, buy back the land, and give it back to Ruvain. Okay, so that's a law. In other words, just what's the chiddush of the law? What's, what's the novelty? We can force the buyer to return the land. Not for free, but getting back his money, but we force the purchaser to give back the land. Does that make sense? even before the Jubilee year. So he thought he was buying it, let's say year 10. He thought he was buying it for 40 years. Comes along the Redeemer and says, no, we have the money now. Going to give you the money and take back the land. And you kick this guy out of the land that he just bought. Now, of course, there's rules and regulations and stipulations about this, but that's the general idea. It's a pretty radical idea, this redemption of the land. And verse 26, and if a man does not have a Redeemer, no relative with cash. But he himself gains enough means to afford his redemption. So now imagine, like a few months later, this Ruvain, who had to sell his field to get, uh, to get money, he invests that money and he does very well. And now he can buy back his original property. So what do you do? Here's what, here's what you do. He shall calculate the years for which the land has been sold and return the remainder to the man who he sold it, to whom he sold it. And then he may return to his inheritance. I'm just going to finish verse 28 and then go back. But if he cannot afford enough to repay him, his sale shall remain in the possession of the one who has purchased it until the Jubilee year. And then in the Jubilee year, it shall go out and revert to his inheritance. We're going to use very simple numbers and give a very simple scenario. The house, the field. Let's talk about a field. The field is worth $50,000. Ruvain needs 50 grand. He needs the money. He doesn't have the money. It's not liquid. He has it in the field. He sells the field to Shimon for 50 grand. He takes the money. Wonderful. Let's stick with Ruvain. 
Let's give a scenario. A few years later, theoretically, a few years later, Ruvin now has plenty of money. Ruvin is square. Square? Flush. He's good. He's got, he's got money. Got plenty of money in the bank. He decides he wants his field back. He wants his property back. He goes to Shimon, the purchaser, and says, listen, you paid me $50,000. You were going to have it for 50 years until the Jubilee year. Because Jubilee year, I get it back anyway. You just enjoyed it for two years. So I'm going to make you an offer. I'm going to pay you $48,000. You with me? You used it for, you, you got two years out of it. So you got your $2,000 worth of usage. I'm not giving you back. I'm not going to give you 50 grand back. I'll prorate it. I'll give you back 48,000. Give me my field. Shimon cannot protest. Shimon doesn't have a say in the matter. That's the point of, what the, of the mitzvah. The mitzvah is that Reuven should get back his property. And that means that if Shimon has it, because he bought it, but Reuven gets the money, Reuven can buy it back and force him to sell it back to him at a prorated rate. In other words, Shimon can't say, oh, you have money now, $70,000. How, how much do you want your ancestral land? How much do you want your inheritance? I mean, because we could wait for 50 years or 48 more years until the Jubilee year, or you can pony up and give me 70000 He can't do that. He can't squeeze it. He's got to give it back to him at the prorated rate from the initial purchase price. He's got to give it back to him for that money. And it's either Ruvain who comes up with the money or even a relative or, or friend or somebody that comes up the, with the money on his behalf. The Torah has an interest of returning, reuniting the land with the original owner of the land with that tribal and familial inheritance. Does that make sense? Torah yeah, like, yeah. I just want to add something. Sure. So you're... You know, describing it as the Torah has an interest. Yeah. So in the United States, secular secular law, we say there's a public interest. You know, like interesting, there's right? Laws like, like, you know, if there's if someone if an employer fires or an employee leaves the employer and goes to a competitor, it's public policy. That generally speaking, the original employer cannot prevent the ex-employee going to a competitor. So that's like public policy. You know, but right. that, it's enforceable in the court. So, you know, a, a lawyer can go to court representing. I've had it actually happen to me. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. You know, an employer didn't want to lose me. Right. And I went to a competitor, a better offer, you know. Right. I mean. Uh-huh. And what's interesting is what you're saying is there's a there's an interest for the community. There's a community interest. And yeah. here, you know, I guess you could say also here somewhat a community interest. In other words, there's an interest for everybody that the tribal lands and their inheritances kind of stay intact. That we don't blur the lines between, let's say, Rufin and Shimon, the two tribes. We want to keep things as they were. So I guess, yeah, there's a divine interest. So, yeah, so in the U.S., it's the community interest is not impinging on a person's ability to make an income. Right, right. Yeah. And guess what? Yeah, guess what? The employer was an Orthodox Jew. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. And he actually impeded upon me celebrating Passover. Ah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you mentioned yeah, you mentioned. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, All right. Listen. <laughs> uh, you know, everyone does what they do. But, yeah, there's definitely the Torah wants to... Make sure that this land 
uh, it ends up back with the owner, with the original owner. So it's going to happen by default in the 50th year. But if he can buy it back earlier, the Torah encourages that process and f- allows that process to unfold without being impeded, without a claims of unfair, I bought it, it's mine, wait 50 years. We don't do that. We allow that to happen much, much sooner. Joy, did you want to check? happy ending. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a happy ending. So my brother, represents, that's how I know. My brother represented me, and that was what he put forth, the public there you go. policy. There you go. <laughs> and you won, I guess. <laughs> so my question is, does this have anything to do with, this is what I've heard, is that the property in the old city in Jerusalem does it really belong to the resident that the original owner can come back and take it, especially if the Mashiach comes? That's an interesting question. That's a very interesting. That's a very interesting question. And you're talking about modern Israel, right? Modern Israeli modern law. Israel, that's a city. great question. I'm not sure. It wouldn't surprise me if it's inspired by this conversation. That would not surprise me whatsoever. Um, I think there are certain places, even in America, where you can't actually buy it, buy land permanently. You have like a lease of it for like 100 years or something. There's like some sort of covenant that you can't actually buy it outright. And it sounds like there's something like that going on. I would have to look that up or anyone could look that up and see kind of what that's about and what the intention is. But it seems very similar, essentially, to what what the Torah is saying. And that is, whenever you sell land from that original division, you're not actually selling it. You're really giving that person a 50-year lease. Well, I mean, it's not necessarily 50. It could be 10 or it could be 20, depending on what year it is, right? You're giving that person uh, somewhat of a lease until the Jubilee year, but there's always the provision to be bought to be bought out, right? To be, to be bought out and then you're bounced. And what's interesting is that the Torah considers it to be um, a greater right I don't mean right like a right, but like the right thing, the righteous thing to do was to get it back to the original owner than to allow the purchaser to stay there until the Jubilee era. And the truth is, the buyer knows about it because it's right here, black and white in Torah. It's not like, oh, I had no idea about this program, about this buyback program that he could redeem at any time. I mean, it's literally in the Torah. It's literally an obvious, not a hidden law. It's not in the fine print of a contract, of a real estate contract. It's straight up. You should know you're buying this land and you can enjoy it until the Jubilee year or whenever the guy buys it back from you. There you go. So you're probably not going to invest that much in it. But at least you're hooking guy, the guy up with cash. You get some use out of it. And what, whoever wants to buy it, I mean, that's the system. When you're operating within a system, remember, we're trying to think about like how that system would work here. That would be, that would be bizarre. And who would ever buy that land if you could get bounced at any moment? But in a system where all land is like that, in Israel, in a country where all land, in ancient Israel, where all land was like that. So that's what you were operating in. So you bought land, but you knew what was going to, you knew the score. You knew what the, what the rules were. Does that make sense? It's like you kind of know what's going on. it's like Hong Kong had it, uh, the UK had a 99-year lease. Where is it now? It's back to China. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Over the whole, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. I mean, politically, it's not exact because they still argue, but politically, Hong Kong has reverted back to China. That's what China says, that's for sure. Remember when that was the news? Like before COVID, it was like Hong Kong, remember the umbrella protests? Everyone with the red umbrellas and everything? 
Oh, well, I guess uh, other stuff happened. Okay. All right. Back to Rashi. Let's do Rashi. Okay. I have Rashi. Surprise. Rashi's toggled. Okay. Here we go. If your brother becomes destitute and sells land, this teaches us, says Rashi, that a person, oh, look at this. A person may not sell his field in ancient Israel, except when under the pressure of poverty. In other words, again, the Torah's interest, God's interest, or our, our collective interest is that the land stays in the same tribe. The land stays in the same family. We're not looking to move things around with ownership. Right? Different people own different pieces of land. So the Torah essentially prohibits a person to sell land, ancestral land, inherited land, inherited property, unless under duress, the pressure of poverty. Um, some of his inherited property, he sells some of it, but not all of it. Scripture teaches proper conduct, namely that he should leave one field for himself. He should leave at least one field for himself, even when he sells out of, uh, uh, under pressure of poverty. He should still leave one field for himself, at least to live on and to, to, to uh, I guess, if things could grow and he could eat from. Um, he can redeem, so the relative can redeem his brother's sale. And as I mentioned multiple times uh, today already, and the purchaser cannot impede the redemption. The purchaser can't say, hey, I bought this. You, I don't let you buy me out. Or, you know, raise the price. You want to buy me out? $70,000. It's not, it's not up to the purchaser. It's a reality. The moment that guy comes, the moment the seller or the relative or whatever it is comes up with the money, he's bought out. That's it. You're done. All right. And if a man does not have a redeemer, look at Rashi. Look at Rashi. Such a powerful Rashi. But is there a man in Israel who has no relative to redeem his sale? What does it mean? If a man does not have a redeemer, what, there's no relative? Rashi says no. However, Scripture means a redeemer who is financially able to redeem his sale. In other words, it's not that he doesn't have a relative. He has relatives. But the question is, do they have the cash to buy back the field, to buy back the land? That's the question. It's possible that this guy has no relatives that have that money. But if he comes up with the money himself, then he is allowed to purchase it back. So now let's take a look at the details in Rashi. He shall calculate the years of his sale. The original owner asks the purchaser, how many years, it doesn't have to be a conversation, just pull up a calendar, but whatever. How many years were left until the next Jubilee? And the, the purchaser answers, such and such number of years. Let's give the example that I gave. He buys it year one. He wants to redeem it a year or two later. So there's 48 years left. The owner continues, and how much did I sell it to you for? He answers for such and such, 50000 Continues the original owner, you would have eventually had to return the field to me at Jubilee. Hence, rather than buying actual land, in effect, you bought from me a number of produce yields according to the total for every year remaining until Jubilee. I guess they're not, they're not thinking about necessarily like living on the land, but rather the, the yield of the produce on the, on the land. How many years of crops did you purchase? 50? Okay, great. Now you have eaten from it for three or four years for whatever the amount may be. Let's say again, 50,000. And his example here is three or four years, not one or two. Okay, fine, three or four years. Therefore, subtract their value from the total, i.e. from the original sale price, and take the remainder until Jubilee. 
right? In other words, what you already enjoyed, let's say you enjoyed three years of, of, of living on the land and enjoying its produce, great. So that you, you earned, you ate three years worth of, uh, of produce. So take off three years from the, total, from the total that remains. And this is the meaning of and return the remainder of the purchase price over the crops he had eaten and he shall give it to the purchaser. So he gives him essentially, in this case, 46 or 47,000 and gets back the land. Oh, so interesting. Take a look. The original owner makes the deal with the man to whom he had sold it. Look at this. That means, Rashi says, I eat to the man to whom he, the seller, who's coming to redeem it, had originally sold it. If the first purchaser, listen to this case, if the first purchaser had sold it to another person for a higher price, the original owner sells it for 50, for 50 years. The first, the, the guy who bought it resells it, flips it for 70. Okay? So now who does the original owner deal with? Rashi says, based on the Talmud, the original owner makes the above calculation only with the first purchaser to whom he sold the field and not with the subsequent purchaser. You see that? No deal with Mr. 70,000. I'm dealing with the 50,000. I'm giving him the money. I'm getting back his field. That's it. I, the other guy, paid him 70,000. Okay, so they, they have to work it out. Those two have to work it out. So again, Reuben sells to Shimon 50,000. Shimon flips the field to Levi for 70,000. Ruvain, when he wants to redeem the land, only deals with Shimon. And he prorates it and he gives him back his money and he gets the field back. I, Levi's, Levi has use of the land currently, not Shimon, because Shimon flipped it to Levi. Okay, so Shimon and Levi have to work it out. So Shimon has to give Levi back his money. He gave him 70,000. He's got to give back his 70 grand. Minus whatever use he had from it. And then he's got to give that land. Reuven has to give that back. Sorry, Shimon. Oh, yeah, I think I'm confusing myself. Reuven sold to Shimon. Shimon sold to Levi. So Shimon and Levi have to work that out amongst themselves. But Reuven gets the feel back from Shimon. He only deals with the party that he sold it to. Now, if he cannot afford to, to repay him, to buy it back. So then it remains. So here, Rashi says, from here we learn that he cannot redeem part of a field, but either all or nothing. Oh, if he sold a field... For 50000 and a few years later, he wants to buy part of the field back. He says, you know what, I, can't, I don't have fifty, but I have 25000 I want to buy half my field back. He cannot force the purchaser to give it back to him for the twenty-five. You cannot force him to split it up. Either he redeems it completely, or he doesn't have the money, and then he backs off until the Jubilee year. Does that make sense? It's either all or nothing, as Rashi says. Until the Jubilee year, but not including the Jubilee year. And hence, the purchaser must not at all enter the jubilee year while in possession of the field because the jubilee year, as we read before, releases the field from his possession at its very onset. So the beginning of the jubilee year, land goes back to the original owner. All right, that's reading four. I think that makes sense. Bottom line is, Torah talks about a case where somebody falls on hard times, is forced to sell a field, and is able and encouraged to repurchase it, to, to get it back as soon as possible. Okay, reading number five. Chapter 25, verse 29. Okay, a little bit, little bit longer reading. And when a man sells a residential house in a walled city, think about the case. It's not a field. The previous case was a field. 
Now we're talking about a house in a walled city. A walled city means a city in Israel that has a wall around it from the times, from, a, from the original times of the conquest of the land of Israel, when, when Jews first settled the land of Israel. So an orig- if somebody puts up a wall today around the city, it's not called a walled city, just because it has a wall. It means from the original fortified cities of Israel. So if a man sells, a person sells, a residential house in a walled city, listen to this, its redemption may take place until the completion of the year of its sale. You can only buy it back for the first year. You with me? You have 365 days to buy it back. Its period of redemption shall be a full year. Same scenario, different top, di- different uh, um, item of, of for sale. He's not selling land. He's not selling a field that grows produce. He's selling a house, a residence, selling a home. Ruvain sells his home to Shimon. His home is in a walled city. Mazeltov, Shimon gets a home in the walled city. Shimon knows that for the first year, for 365 days at any time, Ruvain can give him back his money and, and get the house back. But if it is not redeemed by, by the end of a complete year, then that house, which is in the city that has a wall, shall remain permanently the property of the one who purchased it throughout the generations, and it will not leave his possession in the Jubilee year. Listen to this. This is how homes are different than fields. When it comes to a field, the field is released back to the original owner in the Jubilee year. It could be redeemed at any time, but when it's a home in a walled city, then he has, the clock is ticking from the moment of sale. You have 365 days to reverse it. If it's not reversed, it's never going to be reversed. Jewish, unless they mutually agree to sell it back, you know, for the, the buyer to sell it back to the original owner. They can do that, but you can't force redeem it back to himself after that first year. You know, it's kind of like when you book an airline ticket, you have 24 hours to cancel it and get a refund. Same thing is true with selling a home in a walled city in ancient Israel. You have one year, not one day, you have one year to reverse the sale. Cancel, I'll give you back your money, give me back my house, and the guy can't protest. He'll say, I moved in. I, li- I, I, I moved in. I like this house. You're not getting it back. You can't do that. If it's within the first year, the seller can force the buyer to give it back to him. He has to give him back his money, but he can force the buyer's hand. After one year... Forget about it. The commentaries, of course, discuss this. And the commentaries explain that within the first year, okay, maybe the buyer hasn't settled fully in. But after the first year, he settled in. This is his home. This is his uh, permanent residence. You can't uproot a family from a home willy-nilly. Now, you could ask, well, why are you allowed to do it within the first year? Okay, so again, it's part of the protocol of Jewish law. For the first year, don't hang up any pictures. You with me? Don't, don't, uh, don't start repainting the walls. For the first year, there's at any moment the guy can buy it back from you. After that, you can take a deep breath. It's yours. Start knocking in things. Start redecorating, right? putting in new lighting. Go to town on new fixtures. Go nuts. That's essentially what's going on over here. Make sense? Donna. Does, does this mean that in a walled city that... 
there's no individual ownership of land? Because, I mean, the house is on land. Excellent question. Excellent question. My understanding is that the difference is not between land versus physical house, but land that's about a residential living on it with a house versus a, versus a field that's designed for produce and crops. My understanding of the previous reading, and maybe I didn't clarify it then, was that we're talking about, and even I think Rashi alluded to it, is that we're talking about a field that is designed to give produce, whether it's a, a wheat or a field or a vineyard or apple orchard, whatever it is. It's designed to produce food. So in that case, we say to the buyer, look, you enjoyed it. You had food for a certain amount of years. Great. This guy's going to buy it back from you. You can't stop it. But when it comes to a home, which is also on land, to address your question directly. So the, it's the, included. The land the is land, I, believe, I believe so. I believe yeah. so. The land would be included. But again, we're not talking about a land that's for... It's not separate. Yeah, it's not an orchard, right? It's not like a land that's, you know, this would be the land for the home. Now, what, <clears throat> what if it's a field with a house? That's, I don't know, that's beyond my pay grade, right? That's like, okay, I'm not sure. But I guess within a walled city, maybe you didn't have fields it like that. Far, yeah. It's possible that you didn't have that type of land inside a walled city. It was more... It's kind of like suburbs versus, you know, in the city, you know, in town versus suburbs. You know, the, not that there are farms in the suburbs, although maybe there are some in, in some suburbs. But, you know, it's kind of like in the city itself, you're probably just going to have houses on land. As opposed to a little bit further out, outside of the walled city, that, then already you're dealing with like farms and that sort of thing. That's my understanding of this. It's, it's a very interesting, very interesting law. Um, in fact... Let's jump in and take a look at Rashi. Because just, just to clarify, the next verse 31, which we have not yet read, talks about houses in open cities. I don't want to get to open cities yet. Let's stick with walled cities and let's figure out what's going on here. So first of all, Rashi clarifies that a walled city means, as I mentioned, it means within a city surrounded by a wall since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Who was Joshua? He was the guy that led the Jewish people after Moses' passing into Israel. So it means original walled cities. Don't put up a wall around the city and say, oh, we got a walled city. It means the original walled cities, fortified cities. So redemption may take place until the completion of the year of its sale, until the first year, until the end of the first year. Now Rashi says, since regarding a field, Scripture states that one may redeem it whenever one wishes after two years have elapsed, did we see that inside? Okay, Rashi clarifies that when we talked about redeeming it, it has to be after two years have elapsed since the date of the sale and onwards until Jubilee, and that within the first two years following the sale, one may not redeem it. Okay, maybe. Rabbi, okay. did each tribe have its own walled city? No. 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 I mean, because I'm just. It says multiple walled cities. I mean, yeah, there were there were, but I don't think it was one per tribe. It was just whatever were the walled cities. Whatever needed. Yeah. Okay. So regarding a field, listen to this: you cannot redeem it within the first two years. You got to give the guy two years to enjoy the crops. But after two years, he can redeem it whenever he wishes. Until jubilee, and that within the first two years following the sale, one may not redeem it. So that's the case of the field. So since that's true, Scripture found the necessary to specify that in this case, 
The opposite applies, namely that if one wishes to redeem it within the first year following the sale, one may redeem it, while after that one may not redeem it. So this is actually the opposite psychology um, of the field case. Fields and, and houses are the opposite. For a field, you let the purchaser, you give the purchaser a guarantee two years of use. You bought a field, you bought an apple orchard, you bought a vineyard, you bought a wheat field, great, enjoy it. You got two years. After two years, the guy can buy you out whenever. When it comes to a house, the opposite is true. The first year, he can buy you out whenever, throughout that first year. After that, he cannot buy you out. So it's the opposite, the opposite uh, psychology. All right, its period of redemption shall be, uh, i.e. the redemption of the house, not the redemption of the sale or the redemption of the seller. Fine. A full year, the days of a full year are called yamim. Okay, Rashi brings a scriptural source for that. Um, I just want to do a quick search back to reading three. Give me one second. Nope. Nope. There's no mention here of the two years. So clearly Rashi is getting that from elsewhere in Scripture, or we just know it. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see if maybe it's, it's upcoming. Okay, back inside. All right, back inside. Sorry, I was just browsing for, uh, further. Verse 31. But houses in open cities. Okay, a house in an open city. i.e. most cities in Israel, which do not have a wall surrounding them, i.e. didn't have a wall in original times. They are to be considered as the field of the land. It may have redemption, and it shall leave the purchaser's possession in the jubilee. Let's see Rashi on that right away. Rashi says, houses in open cities. Um, okay, no, that's a grammatical thing. Okay, houses in open cities are like fields. Rashi says they are like fields, which may be redeemed until the Jubilee and leave the possession of the purchaser reverting to the original owners in the Jubilee if they had not been redeemed until then. In other words, the, the houses in open cities are returned back to the original owner in the Jubilee year, just like fields. It may have redemption immediately, Rashi says, if one wishes to redeem it. And by virtue of this element, they have a greater advantage to the original owner than do fields. Since fields may not be redeemed until two years have elapsed since the sale. As Rashi says on verse 15 above. Okay, that's where we want to, we want to look up Rashi of verse 15 above. Okay, we're going to get, I'm, I'm actually going to pull that up. So we have three different cases, which I'm going to clarify in a moment. Um, and they shall leave the purchaser possession of the Jubilee without payment. Regarding fields which are required to remain uh, with the purchaser for two years, uh, if the jubilee occurs after only one year has elapsed from the sale, then the field reverts to the owner for the jubilee year, but the purchaser takes it back for one more year afterwards. In the case of houses in open cities, however, even if the jubilee occurs after only one year, the house reverts to the original owner without any payment. So let me explain what's going on here and give you three different cases. You ready? All of it is land, sorry, we're all talking about in ancient Israel, three different scenarios. You sell a field, a house in an open, in a walled city, and a house in an unwalled city. Three cases. Three different cases, three different laws. When it comes to a field, we're going to do this very simply. When it comes to a field, 
If you sell someone a field in ancient Israel, they get full use for two years. You cannot start buying it back and redeeming it until after two years. You give them the usage of two harvests of the field. Then you can buy it back at a prorated rate. That's fields. Next, case two. Houses in walled cities. You have one year to buy it back, one year to redeem it. After that year, you'll, you'll never see it again. If you don't buy it back from that guy, redeem it, within the first year, it's his, and you don't get it back the Jubilee year. I should have mentioned with fields, you have to give the purchaser two years to use it, then you can redeem it, and if you don't redeem it by the Jubilee year, it goes back to you. With regards to homes, you have one year to redeem it, the first year. After that, it's the, it's, it's the, new, the new owners, it's his, and, you, and you, you don't get it back in the Jubilee year. Case number three, houses in open cities. It has a little bit of both. Like houses in walled cities, you can buy it back, you can redeem it immediately. Like fields, you can redeem it after the first few years. So essentially, when it comes to a wall, uh, uh, um, a house in a walled city, in an unwalled city, in an open city, you can redeem it at any time. And if you don't, it reverts back to the possession of the original owner in the Jubilee year. Those are your three cases. Those are your three scenarios. I hope that makes sense. Now, I do want to go back because I feel like somewhere, somewhere we read this in Rashi, or somewhere we read this, and, um, oh, that's where it was. There you go. Ah! It's a rabbinic understanding. This is from an earlier Rashi that we skipped. It's a really long Rashi and, and a bit technical, which is why we skipped it a few days ago. Essentially, essentially what Rashi is saying I quoting from the Talmud and the Midrash is that there is a rabbinic enactment that says that when it comes to fields, you have to let the purchaser utilize it for two years and only then do you get it back. Only then could you redeem it back. Okay, but that is... Um... Okay. And Rashi, uh, it's, it's derived from the verse that says that when you sell a field, that the purchaser can use it for the years of the purchase. So years, plural, means at least two, which means we always guarantee the purchase of a field at least two years of usage of the field. And any redemption would happen after those two years. That's what it says. Yeah. So does this whole, all of these concepts inform halakhic law, like that we've been that we've been, we studied with, um, you be the judge, you know, ownership, property rights. Is that, is this all kind of the foundation, some of the foundation? Well, it, it is somewhat, but this only narrowly applies to land in, um, in Israel. Back in the day when things were still being, you know, still divided by those original divisions. I mean, it, it, you know, nowadays, I don't believe these laws are in effect. Not, not, I don't believe these laws are not in effect. Because it's not divided by the original divisions. So, so Talmudic law is, um, is also after that time. 
So I mean, it'll, it'll talk about what the laws were, but it wasn't a current thing. Now, would it inform? Would the values inform yeah. other types of? Right. Sure, certainly, absolutely, absolutely. And again, it's the rabbis are are deriving from the earlier verse, which I could put up on the screen, but just take my word for it, which says that when you sell somebody land, when you sell somebody a field, they get to use it for the years of their purchase. Years is plural. That means they have to be able to use it for at least two years before any buyback program kicks in. So when it comes to a field, specific, not a house, a field, you give the purchaser two years untouched usage. After two years, the redeemer can buy it back. The original owner can buy it back. They can force that sale. They can force reverting that sale back by giving the money. When it comes to a house in a walled city, you only have the first year to do so. After that, see you later. See you later, alligator. When it comes to a house in an unwalled city, in an open city, you can redeem it immediately. You can redeem it after the first few years, and it reverts back in the Jubilee year. So that's the full arc of the, of the conversation. Those are your three cases. By the way, there is a Kabbalistic understanding of all three cases. Like there's a way to study this according to Kabbalah. What's a field? And what's a house in a walled city? What's a house in an unwalled city? It reflects different dimensions of our inner personality and a spiritual dynamic, but that's not for now. Maybe, uh, maybe another time we'll get into that. Okay, let's jump into the next verse, which is 42. Okay, let me share this with you. All right, now we're getting into the Levite cities. And regarding the cities of the Levites, I know there are specific cities that were designated for Levites. The houses of their inherited cities shall forever have, the right, have a right of redemption for the Levites. If a Levite sells his house, he can always get it back. And if one purchases from the Levites, whether a house or an inherited city, will leave the possession of the purchaser in the Jubilee. Right? Whatever is purchased from the Levite will always go back if it wasn't redeemed prior in the Jubilee year, because the houses of the cities of the Levites are their inherited property amidst the children of Israel. That is their inherited property. And a field in, an open, in the open areas of their cities cannot be sold because it, because it is their in, an eternal inheritance. Let me explain. The Levite cities had open fields, had open areas, those could never be sold because it is their eternal inheritance. You can't sell. You could sell the, the houses, the Levite houses you could sell, but not the open field areas in the Levite cities. All right, we'll, we'll do Rashi on that. Let's do a quick, uh, a quick perusal of Rashi on that. Um, what are the cities of the Levites? Rashi says the 48 cities that were given to the Levites. There were 48 cities given to the Levites. Um, they shall forever have a right of redemption. If a Levite sells a field of one of their fields that were given to them in the 2,000 cubits surrounding the cities, he may redeem it immediately, even before two years have elapsed since the sale. If he sells a house in a walled city, he may re always redeem it, and the house is not transferred permanently to the purchaser at the end of the first year after the sale, as opposed to the case of a non-Levite owner, as we talked about before. Oh, a field in the open areas of their cities cannot be sold, Rash says, by the temple treasurer. I.e., if a Levite consecrated his field and did not redeem it and the treasurer sold it, 
in the Jubilee, the field does not leave the possession of the purchaser and revert to the Kohanim, as it is said concerning a field originally owned by an Israelite. And if he sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. But a Levite, by contrast, unlike an Israelite, may always redeem his field. Now, let's do a few more verses, and then we are going to close out for today. If your brother becomes destitute and his hand falters beside you, you shall support him, whether a convert or a resident, so that he can live with you. And here the Torah encourages us or demands and requires us to be generous and to help out someone who's fallen under hard times. Whether they are a convert, in other words, they're new to the community, or whether they're an old-timer, you know, long-standing member of the community, it doesn't make a difference. If someone becomes destitute, if they fall on hard times, then you have to help them. You shall not take from him interest or increase. So we're talking here about helping them with tzedakah or a loan. If you give a loan, can charge interest. And you shall fear your God and let your brother live with you. Live with you means... Give them the opportunity to live and be successful. If you charge interest, it's like giving them a cup of water and poking a hole in the bottom where just the money keeps on draining. It never ends. It's a never-ending drain. You're not allowed to do that. You shall not give him your money with interest, nor shall you give your food with increase. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be a God to you. You better listen. Basically, God is saying, I took you out. I can put you back in. I'm kidding. He doesn't say that. But basically he says, I took you out. Do the right thing. You got to behave. All right. Let's do Rashi's quickly and then we'll close it out for today. Rashi says, if uh, your brother becomes destitute, you shall support him. Do not allow him to fall down and collapse altogether. In which case it would be difficult to pick him up again from his dire poverty. In other words, by the way, this is such, you talk about values, Donna, right? Jewish values. And rabbinic values and legislation, look at this value. Don't let him fall. In other words, what's better? To have programs, if you talk about social programs, to have a social program for when somebody hits poverty, or to have a pro- job training, education, and other programs to prevent someone from ever getting to there in the first place. The answer is, obviously, door number two is better than door number one. Right? That's what he's saying. Do not allow him to fall down and collapse altogether, in which case it would be difficult to pick him up again. Rather, support him while his hand is still faltering, for then it is easier to help him out of his trouble. And Rashi gives a beautiful parable or analogy from the Midrash to what can this be compared to a load on a donkey. While it's still on the donkey, one person can grasp it and hold it in place. Once it falls to the ground, even five people cannot pick it up. So imagine, you got a donkey that's it's teetering, it's teetering. One guy can help out. Once it falls, now you need a crew. Now you need a crew to deal with the mess. When somebody crashes, God forbid, it becomes much harder to, pick, to help them back up. If somebody is, you know, if, 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 the inco- if, if things start, you know, if things start getting a little tight, at that point, that's where the assistants can come in to help and help support the individual. Um, next in, do not charge interest or increase the rabbis regard these as one but the Torah uses two terms so that one who takes interest transgresses thereby two negative commandments in other words there's two Hebrew words 
and in the English it's interest or increase, essentially the same thing. But if you do charge interest, well then you charge interest and increase. So now you got two felonies or two, uh, two violations of the law. You shall fear your God. A person's desire is naturally attracted to taking interest. It makes sense. I give you money. What, I should get something in return. I should, I should get a little kickback. And it's difficult to stay away from it. For he rationalizes and grants himself false permission because of his money, which was lying idle while in his debtor's hands. Therefore, Scripture found it necessary to state here, and you shall fear your God. Or if someone ascribes his money to a non-Jew in order to lend it to a Jew with interest, oh, look at that. Somebody says, I can't lend it with interest, so I'm going to take on a partner who isn't Jewish and give them, have them do the deal because they could charge interest that's working the system. It's working around. That's a loophole. Don't do that. This is a matter held secretly in a man's heart and thought. Therefore, Scripture deems it necessary to state, and you shall fear your God, who is privy to all inner thoughts. Don't mess. God knows the plan. God knows the plan. God is watching. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, and I distinguish between a, fir- a firstborn Egyptian and, and a non-firstborn I'm also capable of discerning and exacting punishment for someone who lends money to his fellow Jew with interest and says it belongs to an non-Jew. Right? Someone says, oh, I didn't lend you money. My partner who isn't Jewish lent you the money. And nice try. You're, you're lending it with interest. You're busted. But God says, I, can, I, I know these things. I can figure out who's a firstborn and not a firstborn in Egypt. I got this. You can't, tr- you can't fool me. You can't trick me. Um... Or another explanation, God is saying, I took you out of the land of Egypt on the condition that you keep my commandments, even if they're difficult for you. Yes, it's very attractive to charge interest and make more money and make money. Why should I take my money? I should take $1,000, give it to someone and get it back six months later. And what do I get back? $1,000? I just wasted my money. I just, what happened? I just, my money went, went for nothing because I'm only getting, I should at least get 1100 Not according to Torah. But, but that's not fair. Life is not fair. And God says, I took you out of Egypt. You got to keep my commandments, whether you like them or not, whether you find them difficult or not. The right thing to do is not to charge interest, especially when somebody is hurting financially. They're hurting financially. They need to borrow $1,000. And now you're going to charge them ultimately $1,100. How's that helping them? Okay, short-term cash, but long-term you're hurting them. So there you go. Don't charge interest. And I took you out to give you the land of Canaan as a reward for accepting my commandments. To be a God for you, for I am a God to anyone who lives in the land of Israel, but anyone who leaves it without... Oh, here's another law. (laughs) To give you the land of Canaan to be a God means I am a God to anyone who lives in Israel. But anyone who leaves Israel without halakhic permission is like one who worships idols. By the way, the Rebbe Rebbe told this to people, to some people when he was asked, how come you don't live in Israel? Rebbe said, halakhically, it's a problem if you go to Israel and then leave. So, I'm not, uh, listen, as you know, I was born in Israel. So, like, Maimonides, by the way, uh, according to legend and tradition, apparently he would sign, sometimes he would sign his name, Maimonides, Moshe Ben the one who violates the commandment of not living in Israel, etc. So, look, it's a thing, but here we see this idea that to live in Israel is a very holy thing, special thing. To leave Israel, you got to have halachic permission. What does that mean? You have to ask a rabbi? I mean, maybe. But it also means that there has to be a reason, a reasonable reason for leaving. One good reason is for issues of financial issues. Like if you need 
an, an income and your job is elsewhere, or your job transfers, or you lost your job there and you need a job somewhere else, that's a valid reason. And there are other many valid reasons as well. But the point here is that leaving Israel is not just an obvious thing. It, it requires at least a little bit of thought because it's so special. Ray, don't forget to unmute if you want to jump in. Yeah, you got does it. That mean, does that mean, does that apply today? So you go and you try it out and you realize this, this isn't for me. It's too hard. I can't do it. So that might be halakhically permissible. In other words, if a person says, like, I, ch- I, can't, I can't hack it. It's just not for me. That might be within the, uh, within the guidelines. I don't know all the details. I'm just saying, I, don't, I mean, I don't have it fresh. I'm sure I learned that at some point, but I don't have it on my, my, my fingertips. It's not a question that I'm asked on the regular. You know what I mean? It's not like, uh, you know. But there are certain criteria. Again, financial for sure. And then there are, other, there are other reasons why one could leave Israel. Could it be that if somebody just, you know, just can't find a place or can't find, you know, just doesn't? Maybe. Maybe, but the point is, it's not. It's it's it, the Torah cautions us against being flippant about it, being very casual with leaving Israel. It's something to take into consideration and to take it seriously. Anyway, food for thought. Nothing definitive today, but food for thought. Rashi sneaks that in at the end. All right. So, what's the moral of the story? We'll wrap it up. What's the moral of the story? So, what we see here is a sensitivity, a sensitivity toward the land of Israel, toward the division, toward toward tribal inheritances, and we see here that the Torah's interest in many cases, most cases, is that land and homes revert back to the original ownership. In some cases, that's not going to be the case. In some cases, the, land, the, the, the home is going to remain with the purchaser. Like we gave the example in a walled city. In a walled city, you have one year to redeem the home. If you don't redeem the house in one year, then it belongs to them forever. Okay, that's unique to a walled city. But otherwise, typically it reverts back to the Jubilee. And typically, in all cases... In all cases, at some point in time, the seller will have an opportunity to buy it back. Once again, God's land, it's God's land. We're just tourists, we're just visitors, temporary pass, temporarily passing through. And so as God's, God's masterminding, you know, how the land division should go, the message here is we go with the flow and we're not going to put any real opposition to that sort of division. Maybe a temporary, you know, temporary modification but not, not, nothing that can't be undone. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, putting a wrap on your car. You know, like they, they have these wraps that you can put on your car to like change the look or painting it. Wrap you can always pull off. Again, theoretically, I don't know, I've never wrapped a car. But theoretically, you just pull it off, it's temporary. As opposed to something that's a little bit more of a commitment. And so I'll conclude with a joke about the pig and the chicken. You guys know this one? The pig and the chicken? They're walking down the street, best of friends. They're walking down the street one day and they see a place that's selling bacon and eggs. And the chicken says to the pig, look, we're popular. We're on the menu. People love us. There's a line outside the door. Bacon and eggs, they love us. The pig says to the chicken, that's easy for you to say. For you, it's a donation. For me, it's a commitment. My friends, the message here is, (laughs) there are things that are temporary and things that are permanent. We don't really have that much permanence in this world. That's the truth. That's the truth. But what we do know is that while we're here, we're to make our mark. It's funny. There was once uh, a shliach, a Chabad emissary, who asked the Rebbe the following question. We believe in Mashiach. And we're supposed to believe that Mashiach is coming today. Right? Today, Mashiach is coming. So should I invest in a capital campaign to build a building? 
Or is Mashiach coming? Which one is it? Can't have it both ways. What did the Rebbe, what, what did the Rebbe answer? He said, we have to believe Mashiach is coming today. And at the same time, we have to build in the current circumstance. So in other words, what it means is to know that this is not permanent, but to invest it with permanence. To know that this, whatever this is, is ultimately temporary, but not to become despondent or hopeless because of that, but rather to recognize that within this fleeting time that we have, we invest it with all we've got to create something of substance, to create a change, and to build ultimately a home for Hashem here in this physical world. Thank you very much for joining me today for DPP. Um, as always, it's a pleasure. Tomorrow, no DPP. We're doing um, the JLI course, Beyond Right, at 12 at Chabad with lunch in person. Um, and we'll be back, please God, on oh Friday. I'm actually traveling. I will be in Pittsburgh for my grandfather's first yard site this Shabbos. Um, it's the first yard site this Shabbos, actually. So I'll be there. But I'm arriving, please God, at 9 a.m. So maybe 12. Maybe we can do it. Let's plan on doing it. I once did. I've done, I did it before from Pittsburgh, right? You may, may remember the driveways over there, the outside. Yeah, the, the, side, the side. The side. Building. The bricks. So maybe yeah. we'll, do, uh, we'll do another brick. Uh, oh, and I've done classes, uh, Zoom classes from, from inside yeah. the, di- the dining room as well. Okay, good. Fine. So please God, 12 noon Friday, we'll be back. Zoom, I'll be in Pittsburgh. Y'all will be where you all are. And um, otherwise, good. One more, one more mention. Tonight and tomorrow is a holiday. Lag Baomer. The 33rd day of the Omer begins tonight. It's traditionally a day of celebration, barbecues, bonfires, bow and arrows, um, music. There's a celebration here at Chabad in town tomorrow, I believe, I want to say 5.30. No, maybe 5 to 7. Hold on. I don't want to give false info. I feel like giving bad info is worse than no info. So let me make sure that I got this. Lag Baomer. Here we go. It is tomorrow, 5 to 7, the Chabad in town parking lot, featuring cookout, bonfire, bar and dessert, fun inflatables for all ages, come when you can. Although, fun inflatables for all ages, I don't know about that, but nonetheless, that is what's going on tomorrow. Okay, so don't forget, celebrate in whatever way. A little extra music, a little extra spirit and celebration. All right, we'll see you all. Take care. Tonight, 7.30, Torah Study is a great class. We'll see you guys a little, a little bit later, hopefully. Take care. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me, and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.